Welcome to Talk About. On Talk About, our goal is to sit down with open-minded people for open and honest discussion. No judgment, no hidden agenda, just getting the conversation started. This week, we're excited to sit down with Chris Alexander. In the realm of art and media, Chris has done it all. From writing, directing, and producing his own horror films and music, to teaching the history of horror films, as well as writing countless articles and books on the matter. Listen in as we discuss his work with some of the titans of horror, what inspired him as a young person, and how he continues to expand not only his horizons, but the horizons of the younger generation. Sit back and enjoy the show. So you got a drink there? Yeah, it's, it's not like a drink drink, it's coffee drink. That's good. all good. I got coffee as well, so here we okay. go. Do a virtual right, cheers. Right. Cheers. <laughs> yeah, coffee at this time of the day is, is probably perfect to get things going. And before we do get things going, I just wanted to thank you for sitting down with me and, and chatting horror, uh, which is, uh, is really exciting. As I was sharing with you before we came on, uh, I'm a horror fan, have been for a very long time. Uh, you and I actually met back in 2019 uh, through a mutual friend of ours who had kept talking about this guy. Chris Alexander, Chris Alexander, Chris Alexander. I'm like, okay, cool, man. Like, whatever. That's fine. He's into horror. But holy shit, I didn't realize how much you are in to the horror realm. But before we get into just horror, I'm going to kind of run through a little bit of your resume here because it's astonishing to me. We don't have a seven-part series that we're going to do on you. Uh, this is just a, a kickoff here. But I do want to run through just to give people an idea of, of your qualifications for this conversation and your qualifications and the reason why I'm so excited. So to get, get it started, I'm going to read off the sheet here because there's no way I'm going to remember all of this stuff. But you are a magazine editor, a film critic, director, producer, musician, composer, and a writer. You have been a member of the Toronto Film Critics Association. You were former editor-in-chief of Fangoria. You've composed music for several horror films. You also did uh, a radio show for Fangoria, uh, Dead, uh, Dread Time Stories, which uh, amazing name. Uh, you were editor for ComingSoon.net, which is very cool. You've also written for Metro News. You were a publicist for Warner Brother Canada. You've written as a, col a columnist for Rue Morgue, and you were Rue Morgue, uh, on Rue Morgue Radio for several years. You've also written for the band Kiss, which I thought was really cool. Uh, you've been on the John Oakley Show. You have launched a, uh, another magazine, Delirium, with uh, Full Moon Features. Uh, run by Char Charles Band. Uh, you are a producer of Chris Alexander Sound and Image, operations coordinator for Full Moon Features. And let's see here, you are also running a uh, class right now at Sheridan on the history of horror films. And you are co-founder of Horrorama, which is Toronto-based cult film convention and you are the editor-in-chief of Delirium Magazine, launched with the aforementioned Charles Band. Now. Yeah. Holy shit. So. Yeah, well, yeah. And then I directed a whole bunch of movies, too. So, I mean, there's all kinds of that stuff. I don't even know if you mentioned that. I know no. it's crazy. I haven't had, it's so funny. I haven't had a resume resume for 20 years. And I, I honestly haven't. I think the last time I applied for a job through legitimate um 
channels was like when I was at Warner Brothers. So it's like almost 20 years ago. And I wouldn't even know how to create a resume at this point. I really wouldn't. I'd have to create several. I mean, there's just, it's, it's, I sometimes have to go, what did I actually do all this, this stuff? Cause you know, you live in the moment, you don't really reflect too much on all the, you know, you know, the way it is, you've lived enough years, you, you can flash back in your memory banks. And it's sometimes you have to give yourself a shake. Cause you can't even believe that that was you who did that. Yeah, no, it's, it's, you're right. It is. I've done a lot of stuff. I packed in a lot of stuff and a, well, not as short of a time span as it was, but it's, yeah, still a, a pretty comparatively to some a brief time span, I think. Well, and that's, that's kind of where I want to start, Chris, because when I know you and I are in, of the same age, uh, so we're, we are in the thick of it still now, even though there is a lot of history behind us. But do you ever sit back and maybe this moment is now, do you, do you ever sit back and go, wow, like that? that is me. Like I've done all of that stuff, even though you still have so much more to do. I do. And it's, it's funny because I, I have reached that point now, you know, I have three little boys. They're not so little anymore. They're 15, 13 and 11, but uh, they're still my, my children. And, you know, they're starting to develop an interest in film and they were raised on this stuff, but things will come up, you know, movies will come up, this will come up and, and I'll always have a point of reference. I, you know, I'm like an old boxer telling stories of the ring. I'm, I'll always have a point of reference where I can say something I did with that person or some experience I've had or, you know, and, uh, you know, my girlfriend, the same thing. I mean, she's a little bit younger than me and she'll come up with some and I'll say, yeah, that person. And, and you know, her eyes will roll back like, here we go with another story. But I'm doing that not to to, you know, name drop and drop, you know, that on people's anvils on people's toes or to be a braggart. But honestly, just to kind of cycle through the fluid of my aging brain and go, Oh my God, I did do this. This was real. Da, 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 da. And uh, yeah, so that happens all the time, but it's encapsulating, you know, all the different things I've done in media. I think that's the the bit that kind of hits me because I kind of have to, you know, in various degrees of success, kind of done it all in most, you know, most of the liberal arts, most of the medias I have had some, professional experience and some really substantial experience in in all of the arts which is sometimes blows my mind well it is cool because and i like the way that you frame that it isn't a matter of name dropping or saying i've been there done that and it's a boring thing it really is a matter of when you're in and it's just dawning on me now actually when you're in the thick of it you do have to have a point of reference to say Oh yeah, like that, that's familiar to me. And the reason why it's familiar to me is because I have been in these situations. Now you brought up something that is very interesting and I really wanted to pick your brain on, which is uh, your kids and not your kids in particular, but I know that your kids are getting into movies. Uh, I was reading a post that you had made the other day about Cronenberg's new movie and how you did go to see that, I believe with one of your sons. I want to know because you've written extensively about why we watch horror. You've you've written eloquently about, you know, what horror means to you. I've heard you on different shows talking about horror and you're not talking about, oh yeah, I love the fact that the blood splatters everywhere. You're, you're yeah, exactly. And you know, you're you're waving that off because I agree with you. It's not about that. And I'm going to pick your brain on some films that are really really you know, touchy films uh, for the mainstream. But for me, I was like, yeah, these films are weird, but there's something more there. When it comes to kids and it comes to your own kids and maybe kids in general, how do you determine when it's appropriate 
to expose them to this world that you and I know has so many levels to it. You know, I was raised on this stuff. And I, I think back on some of the stuff I would watch. I came from a very um, liberal upbringing. My, my dad loved science fiction and horror. He exposed me to a lot. My, I have an uncle who's still with us and he's, he's slow, but he's only because he can't function as, a, as you or I would in the normal, quote unquote, normal world. But he's, he was a savant and collected comic books and horror films, meticulously presenting them in his room and uh, you know, Aurora model kits and Viewmasters. And, and he kind of opened up this entire world to me and him and I used to have sleepovers and we trade videotapes. By the time I hit 12, 13, I had surpassed him intellectually. But for a long time, he was my best friend and my movie buddy. And so I had that as part of my day-to-day -day family existence and, and aunts and uncles and everybody loved the arts and weird stuff. You know, they just liked weird stuff and they enabled me to explore that. And it was at a time when there were late night horror movies on TV and you had to really sift through the TV guide and find out what was happening. And I saw a lot of stuff that I probably shouldn't have seen. I didn't really have anyone censoring me, but I, I remember watching heavy metal, you know, the R-rated Canadian cartoon with boobs and bush and blood and, and uh, profanity galore. And, and that was on every day on the pay TV channel we had when I was like seven. And so I would watch that every day and Paul Schrader's the cat people and Cronenberg's early, early films, Shivers and Rabbit. And so I would always watch these movies, but I don't think they ever um, hit me on a way that where I was like offended or shocked. I was always gravitated towards the genre because I was much more just intrigued about the aesthetics, the beauty of, of horror, the, the, you know, kind of quantifying the whole concept of the other something that was the opposite of me or that I could find some sort of point of reference to being on the fringe of, of the world. Because when you love this stuff and no one else around you does, there was no horror culture when I was a kid, especially in Canada. Uh, you always do feel kind of like you're on the fringe. Uh, so I would identify with, with intellectually uh, with, with concepts of the other through these films, and but also discovering special effects and you know, sneaking Fangoria magazines inside comic books at convenience stores just so I could read about Rick Baker making the prosthetic werewolf transformation in American Werewolf in London or discovering Tom Savini and, and really seeing the wizard behind the curtain, all these amazing effects, which were in effect magic tricks. And, uh, you know, so that's a big thing with horror for me. And also being a music guy, my dad was a, pro a prog rock guy, put headphones on my head and try to tell me the stereo separation, like Jimi Hendrix's Third Stone from the Sun and and psychedelic rock and acid rock. And so really understanding the musical aspect of, of film too, I would always kind of pick apart what was going on in a movie and how music would accentuate an image to make me feel something or, or vice versa. And uh, yeah, so I was always kind of approaching the genre from a, an art kid standpoint, really picking it apart and trying to intellectualize why I was gravitating towards this. So with my own kids, raising them on these, and, and God bless my ex-wife, who I'm still very close with, uh, you know, that was always a point of concern. Even though she was starred in a lot of my own horror movies, she was always a point of concern for her. I think a lot of parents, they lose the child at some point and they forget what it's like to be a kid. Uh, but I always showed my kids horror films. But what I would do is I'd show them an American world from London. But then I'd show them that documentary with Baker and I'd show them how that stuff was done. So they would be always aware that this was not reality. This was a distortion of reality. This was a fairy tale. This was not real. And there was real badass art going on in here. And you know what, kids, if you really like this stuff, you too can get involved in this world. You can make your own stuff. And my kids have. You know, so I've um, 
I opened up a world to them. The only thing that I would ever stop showing them, and even to this day, I'm not comfortable with, with cruelty and sadism and sexual violence. You know, I don't like that because I don't think at this, especially at this point in their life, they need to necessarily be exposed to that because they're very aware of the world around them in this media soaked era we live in where they're acutely aware at all times, even in their own classrooms about, about, you know, rape and sexual interference and, and heavy issues that are part of the zeitgeist. They don't really need to explore that. I don't think in an artificial environment when they're not quite emotionally sophisticated enough for us. So I've always blocked that off. Or if it comes up, try to spend some time with them to explain it and so that they can understand it. And this is the last point that I'll make, which is important, I think, for showing kids horror movies, is they really have to understand, like when I watch horror films in my whole life, I'm not one of those guys who I didn't like Friday the 13th movies. I didn't like slasher because I didn't want to identify with a brainless idiot who is ripping people apart. To me, the, I love movies that have extreme violence, but to me, the villain should be the villain. And I always wanted to differentiate between the morality of it. I'm a Rod Serling guy, I'm a Twilight Zone guy. So going into these films, I wanted to see clearly what was happening or even the gray zone discussing what was right and wrong and why things happen. And I, I don't get off on just, hey, look at that wicked kill. You know, I don't get off. I'm not that, I'm not that kind of horror fan. So with my own kids, when things come up like that i've always taken time to explain why the character does this why the cause and effect of and and the effect of violence and how violence can be catastrophic not just on you know the person whose life ends as the result of the violence but also how it ricochets and destroys the world around that person the families the people that know that person i mean so i've always been uh, my kids are good kids i think and, and i think a lot of that moral compass comes from uh, analyzing and discussing film. And I know for myself as a kid too, film was a definitely, uh, you know, helped shape my moral identity because I think I'm a fairly decent person, you know? So yeah, I think horror films are, are very beneficial to the parenting experience. There's no difference really than, than, than reading a, a fairy tale to them. You know, I think it's in, definitely in the same sandbox. It is very much fairy tale, and I think I misspoke earlier because it was Black Phone that I was uh, I was talking about, not Cronenberg's. Uh, yeah, I was gonna. I didn't want to correct yes. you, but I'm like, yeah, no. I didn't show do. them Crimes of the Future, and I yeah. don't know what. Uh, <laughs> that one there, perfect, perfect film for them, and they loved, absolutely loved that film, uh, and that that's another case of like, you know, you go there's a website called Common Sense Media, for instance, that kind of identifies what's extreme in this film to just do you want your kids to see someone's head getting bashed in do you want to see you know it, it's a helpful tool to some degree but it also is is pretty moronic in the sense that all it does is isolate the negative without any context so uh you know their mom saw that i took them to the black phone she's like what's this there's a bully smashing some guy's teeth then and, and a guy gets a hit with a rock and there's a killer in the base it has a guy in a basement he's got a basement full of corpses and there's dead bodies and there's i'm like but that's not what it's about. It's about a kid, you know, who is frail and weak and misses his mom and has this connect, beautiful connection to his sister and even a, a, a supernatural connection to his sister and how he will not stand up for himself. And he eventually meets the ultimate bully in the form of this, this serial killer and how he, with the empowerment of his own sister's guidance and also the, the supernatural world of the previous victims who didn't make it, how he empowers himself and uh, and 
beats this guy, you know? And I think it's a really, it's a perfect kids movie because the kids can lock into this character and see themselves as this character and see how they themselves would find their way out of this world, you know? And it's life affirming and it's, it's beautiful. And it's, it's again, it's about human connection. So there's so much going on in that movie that is, it makes it the ideal film for a young person. They just have to kind of weed through some of the more visceral elements of it, which again, help sell the film to the kid. You know, my kids aren't stupid. No kids are stupid, really. And I think if you softball things too much, especially at that age, when they're 11, 12, 13, you undermine their intelligence. Uh, and The Black Phone, to me, besides being a movie that I love on my own, I think it's a great little, ex- excellent little film that's it's deceivingly simple. I think there's a lot of subtext in that movie. But it is, as a parent, I mean, it's the best kind of horror movie that you can take your kids to and all of you can enjoy. Really well said. And I and that was one of those ones that I had to throw out there because we we went to see it as well. And there was something about it, you know, the storytelling, the simplicity that you threw in as well. Uh, the empowerment aspects of it were, were very visceral, but also the evolution of these characters and these kid characters that for so long have just been chalked up to being just stupid little kids, which is what my era and our era kind of grew up with for the most part, yeah. the average kids was just, you know, uh, be seen, not heard. Uh, you know, if you have a question, just keep it to yourself. You'll be an adult soon. And you and I both know how stifling that is for a young mind to, yeah. to be able to just, you know, shut them up like that. And you're in totally, that but you know, even like, uh, I, we don't just uh, watch a study of diet of horror films. I raised them on, you know, leave it to beaver. And, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of, and it's funny when you look back, there was that era, maybe when we were kids where children's entertainment, I'm not going to say it got dumbed down because you look at like classic Sesame street and things like that. Those were magnificent revolutionary shows, but kids entertainment really did get kind of literally cartoonish for a long time. But if you look back at something like leave it to beaver, even though the average person who's not familiar with that show might roll their eyes, it is one of a pack of many shows at that period in that golden age of television which were almost 100% told from the children's point of view. You know, the, the beaver, for instance, gets in all kinds of nonsense uh, mischief and he's and he has to dig himself out and he, he fucks up and he, he does, you know, but he finds his way through. And uh, it's always from the point of view of the kid. And when we're laughing at the show, we're not, you know, the character on screen, beaver is sweating. You know, he's, oh my God, I did this. I broke the rules. I lied. I'm now on. You know, and uh, but we're laughing at him because we can identify with this kid trying to dig himself out of his hole. And at the end of it, maybe learning a lesson, becoming a better person. There was a lot of that kind of stuff that seemed kind of dopey on the surface. But underneath it was really sophisticated stuff that didn't talk down to children, that actually offered them a, a window where they could see themselves on a screen and identify with these characters. And and. Uh, and so in modern movies, you know, we're kind of living through another golden age, I think, where there's, you know, you can, again, roll your eyes as a horror fan of stuff, it's stuff like Stranger Things or, but that stuff's really important. And I can see it with my own kids. It's really important to that generation because they can completely identify with these young people. And these young people are not stupid. They're intelligent. They're operating outside of the world where they're never taken seriously. And they're literally saving the planet. They're saving the world. You know, kids like to be treated like human beings, like they're intelligent because they are, you know. Absolutely. And and I think it's kind of funny because 
one of the things that you were you were mentioning earlier is that we we tend to grow out of these things you know as adults we tend to lose that childlike innocence or the the way to look at the world as a child uh, i think that most people that know me my my fiance included would, would admit that mm, the child side in me is still quite strong and when i'm watching things like stranger things i'm still identifying with those characters even though those characters are much younger than i am now i can still put myself back in that position when i was their age and I was looking at their world and almost hoping that I had the opportunity to do things like that as a kid and it seems as though now in media and, and maybe you can you can elaborate on this that kids are more empowered now than even some of the adults that I've seen in movies to be able to be free and open and I, I just wonder to myself is that the changing tide or is that just where we are as a society right now where kids are, are feeling to be more empowered to go out there and jump on your bike and save the world? Yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, it's it's a good question. The only thing I can say to that really is reflecting on on the world that these kids are growing up in now is that they are exposed to everything. You know, there was a period where you could, you know, whether it be the MPAA sticking ratings on movies to ensure kids can get through that box office gate uh, to keep them away to our television censoring films for prime time or keeping things late at night so the kid couldn't see them or we can't really shelter kids at all anymore. As soon as that kid gets access to the internet, they're diving usually un, unsupervised into a world that's completely, you know, go for broke. It's gonzo. There's no rules. You know, kids are seeing hardcore pornography. They're seeing whatever's out there. There's no one censoring them. And it's it's up to, to them to kind of figure it all out and up to the parents to kind of be open about that. And not again, treat them like they're idiots because the kids are going to have questions. And if they feel they can't come to their parents or trust their parents with these kinds of questions, that's when they start to kind of transgress, I think. That's when they start to break the rules. That's when they start to lose their way. So I think this generation of kids is smarter, savvier. Certainly they can navigate technology. They can do all kinds of things that maybe a previous generation couldn't. But it's also up to parents, young parents with your parents with young kids to also be smarter and savvier, more open. Uh, with what's out there. Otherwise, they're just ostriches. They're sticking their heads in the sand. You can't protect them from those things. You can't protect them from the evils of the world anymore. The evils of the world are on the table, man. They're in the class. They're everywhere now. So all you can do is address them and, and be the ferryman over the river sticks and, and guide them through it to the best of your ability. So it's a smarter generation that we're seeing. It's a more sophisticated generation. But without smarter, sophisticated parents guiding them, I think we're going to, you know, maybe there's going to be some downfall to that. Yeah, like we talked about before we came on air, uh, technology itself, you know, Zoom, being able to bring the backyard of somebody else at your front door. It, this totally. is a completely different age than than we grew up in, but we've evolved with it. But what I'm hearing yeah. through this whole conversation, this whole piece of the conversation so far, Chris, is balance. You know, it's not all horror all the time. It's some leave it to beaver. It's sci-fi which, you know, I've always had a, a love for, I've always had a like for, I should say, but I have grown to have a love for it recent in recent years. Uh, the, the sophistication involved with sci-fi is unbelievable. My fiance is a massive sci-fi uh, person on top of being, you know, a goth girl and an industrial music girl. So she's expanded my mind in so many ways uh, that actually makes this conversation that much more attractive to me because yeah. of all the elements that you're touching on in, in all the art forms that you're, you're doing. But as I'm watching old Star Trek and I'm watching new Star Trek and I'm watching all the things in between, I'm realizing that these people here 
uh, are, are the intelligence aspect of where the slasher films, which is what I grew up on initially and have kind of grown away from, uh, that's where they were missing that part, right? They, they, there was no real sophistication in that. No, slasher, no, they were, right? they were just formula. They were, I always attribute that and it's a, it's a crude analogy, but it's true. They were the McDonald's of horror of, of, of cinema. I mean, they, they were franchise movies popped out to make a buck. You know, it's always blown my mind. And I too have come around where, I mean, I was raised on the Twilight Zone, I even have like a Twilight Zone tattoo. I mean, Rod Serling is to me the greatest uh, moralist, one of the greatest writers in, in history of any genre. But, you know, I always liked science fiction. I don't think I was aware that I loved science fiction because I came of age at a time when Star Wars was science fiction and I didn't really care about that stuff. And that wasn't science fiction really, it was just a Western in space. But then going back just before Star Wars and, and dialing back the clock as you age and all the questions you are looking for as you age can be found really in the darker appendages of science fiction. You know, but the horror stuff, yeah, I mean, it, it was just, it's blown my mind that in this culture, how there's this influx of academia in the genre. Uh, and, you know, we always have to approach film analysis with some sort of intellectualism, of course, but this academia where there's buzzwords and trends and, and how slasher movies have somehow been deified and analyzed to death when it makes me laugh. It is literally like someone grabbing a McDonald's hamburger and picking apart the, uh, the, the textures of the ketchup versus, you know, the, and the, and the, the meat pad, like, it's just like, this is just garbage food produced cheaply on mass to fill in a void. That's all this stuff. And really by and large ever was, it was all ripping off the Italian giallos, which were in turn ripping off psycho. I mean, it was all, you know, Halloween, there's that nub. And then they all just kind of blow out one big blow and final girls and all this stuff. It's like, no, no, no. That was just copying a formula of the last person standing. It's, you know, if it's not, it's Laurie Strode ad nauseum. It's Janet, not Janet Lee, God bless her. But, you know, you get your last girl standing. She's just the hero. So it's all these guys just trying to, okay, we can't make as much money as Tyler Halloween. But if we do like a shitty low grade version of it, people will go, okay, we'll go see that. So, I mean, there was just, to me, it's, it's hilarious. But as you, as you age, you can go back on those movies and have fun with them because they are, chips and, and and beer they're, they're garbage uh and there's a lot to be liked in them sometimes there's great soundtracks there's great moments of style and you know but as far as your more metaphysical existential questions about the human condition don't waste your time jerking off on those movies because there's not a lot there there's just not you can just make it all up if you want a lot of people do that that's fine but yeah i find the same the same thing is that suddenly i'm discovering star trek and when i was a kid i didn't make time for star trek at all Suddenly I'm going back and, and and all the things I need out of entertainment are there. The bright colors, the weird uh, fetishy production design, the retro future look, the fact that the characters take everything so seriously. There's no humor, you know, no, no cheap self-referential bullshit humor. Like it seems to be the ad nauseum in today's fantasy and science fiction, comic book movies. And also these great existential stories about man's place in the universe. And, and that's where I am in my darker side of 40s those are the questions i'm asking and hoping to have answered so yeah i'm discovering i'm like you I'm, I'm having this late period revelation of really loving and discovering um science fiction films and i always say like you know star wars 1977 right that's when the worm turned so many ways for hollywood for the for science fiction for kids you know all that stuff kind of changed but another movie came out in 77 another science fiction movie uh demon seed have you ever seen Demon Seed? Yeah. Oh, okay. So here's right. So here's like the ultimate, the antithesis, the diametric opposite of Star Wars. Of course, 
couldn't do the business Star Wars did because it was rated R. It's about a, an artificial intelligence who wants to live. This is before Blade Runner cribbed on Philip K. Dick and, you know, taking a Dean Koontz novel and accentuating into this 2001 A Space Odyssey mindfuck movie, but it's an AI who wants to sire a child and so basically imprisons julie christie in a house takes over the house builds itself a, a, a phallus and everything else and and basically sexually assaults her so it can it can live it just wants to live it wants to know the human experience and to me that's what science fiction horror is all about that's the good stuff you know and uh you didn't see a lot of that after star wars in the mainstream because it just wasn't in favor and that's why blade runner died at the box office that's why the thing died at the box office you know people wanted an 82 they wanted et they didn't want the thing so uh yeah i'm babbling here you see i told you i would listen I dude well, I'd I'd go off into spiral into the, into the ether but you see the stupid smile we started with this this question <laughs> doesn't even matter I'll, man. I'll, I'll shut up and i'll let you it doesn't make a difference it doesn't matter at all but the the psychological side of things is something that's always attracted me you know getting becoming an adult and and i think early on with the psychological horror it was more oh i just i want to be smarter i've always been a fan of psychology so i was like if we can kind of blend the two that would be cool and then we we went down this path of of Okay, why are, are some of these directors, quote unquote, the greats? Okay, so let's start off with Cronenberg. Um, you know, I remember watching Rabbit when I was younger and I was scared shitless, but I had no idea why uh, I was scared of it. I was just scared of it. And, and then I'm like, well, and then he's Canadian and I'm a big fan of supporting Canadians. Let's go back and watch it. We watch Videodrome and, and we watched these. I'm like, what the fuck? These are amazing. But these are not movies as a kid I would understand, right? Because he's really in that horror, the body horror realm. And then we started to explore people like David Lynch. And like David Lynch's mind to me is fascinating, but I always thought that he was just in this category of, of cookie cutter for some reason. I don't know why, but it seemed like there was this, you know, label on him. It's like, ah, oh, it's just Lynch doing Lynch. And as we start watching these people, you mentioned 2001, you know, as we're watching these movies, we're like, these are fucking brilliant, brilliant films and filmmakers. And now I'm starting to get into these aspects of like a Jordan Peele. Now I, I'm a fan of Jordan Peele. So when he came out with us and he came out with get out. I really like the message because I'm, I'm kind of in that the realm of trying to understand racism, trying to understand the, these divides that are created. And these filmmakers are now exploring these aspects of them. But then I sat down and I watched hunting a Hill house and people I always get my back up when people say this is the scariest thing I've ever seen. Like, okay, cool. I'll, I'll check it out and I'll see what, what it's all about. I watched the show. I got to the end of it. I'm like, I don't know if you've ever watched the show. But oh, yeah, yeah. It scared, scared me to death. I was afraid to yeah. go upstairs. I watched it alone. I was afraid to go up the stairs that night. That's exactly what I said. It's probably where you're going with this. It wasn't necessarily because of the booga booga. It's because of the, the devastating open sore of an emotional abyss that that movie opens up, that show opens up. And it's su super, super sophisticated writing. I mean, it's, it really, really is. A, yeah. It's a hundred percent. It's a hundred percent. I sat back, I messaged everybody the next day. I said, this move, this show is scary. If you haven't watched it, watch it. And then let me know what you think, because it's not scary for the reasons you think it is has zero to do with ghosts has zero to do with haunted house it's all the human condition it's all the shit that we face on a regular basis that we as people to survive sometimes this is my opinion 
we store it into the dark recesses of the corners yes. of our mind, right? And hopes yes. that we never have to unpack that box. Right. But the reality is that if we want to move through life, and it sounds like you're in the same spot in your life as I am, if you want to move through life as an open human being, you have to address all of this shit in due course. And that's exactly what those show did yeah or else or else like anything pent up and built up it's gonna have some sort of detrimental effect what's that ex expression of what happens in the dark will eventually come to light uh you know and it's it's true i mean you can store, store it away as long as you want it'll event the levy will always burst at some point and it'll always be a perversion of what the original issue was that you probably could have been solved if you had addressed addressed it head on but a lot of horror movies you know haunting of hills deals with it mike flanagan to me is batting a thousand. I mean, the guy has not fucked up once. He's one of the greats. And uh, I can't say that with a lot of contemporary filmmakers, but he's absolutely a great filmmaker. But he always deals with some sort of uh, issue like that, some sort of story about a family or, or somebody trying to hide something. And it always comes out in some perverted, unnatural, in the, in the case of his films, usually supernatural way. And then it's almost like an, it's like an unsolvable problem. I mean, so I, I you know, I like that kind of stuff a, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And, the, you know, the deal is that, and I love Jordan Peele too. I haven't seen Nope, but I suspect I'm going to really like it. But outside of the, the social commentary in Peele stuff, uh, what I love about Jordan Peele and Mike Flanagan and maybe a couple other contemporary directors is that they're not watching, these are guys who love horror and understand the genre, but they're not sitting out there deciding, I'm gonna make a horror movie. They're like, I'm gonna make a movie. I'm gonna say what I wanna say, and I'm gonna use horror as the sort of Trojan horse to get through the front door. And then I'm gonna just, it's a trick. And that's what Rod Serling did. That's what all the great horror filmmakers did from George Romero, from you know John Carpenter at his best. Uh, William Friedkin, all these guys first and foremost set out to make gr uh, great films that were operating on multiple levels, uh, almost genreless, really. And they just used the the skin of horror, really, to kind of get through that that front door. But we have a generation now of people that were raised on watching horror films, and they're all they're trying to do is call themselves masters of horror by regurgitating. They've only they've, they've only consumed horror films. This is it. The horror culture has done that. It's not about uh, any more exploration anymore. It's just about how many uh, tattoos you can get on yourself of whatever fucking movie you've seen. And therefore you are a horror fan. And it becomes this dick swinging thing about how hardcore you are. And it's it's never to love cinema, to, to explore these weighty issues shouldn't be about the surface. It should be about the exploration, the digging, the quest. And the great filmmakers are about that. The middling ones who make the product and make the slasher films and make the, the stuff that comes and goes, it might be fun, but you forget it like bubble gum, you spit it out, you forget what's in your mouth. They by and large, I think, have, are just trying to uh, hit the same beats as all their, their favorite flicks. So you just get the samey, 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 samey. But, but Jordan Peele and Mike Flanagan, yeah, they are, um, they're, they're heroes of the genre right now. I really believe that. Yeah, they're really in that realm of uh, of a uh, of a Kubrick in my mind, right? Like, like I love the way that you describe that. Those those filmmakers that just go in, they use that skin of that genre to tell a story, you know. And when we were watching these uh, these Kubrick films, we're like, oh, this guy is not he's not a genre specific filmmaker. He's no. just a filmmaker that knows how to 
trick you, as you said, using your own word, he, you know, walk yeah. in and say, oh, you want a sci-fi film? Here's a sci-fi film. And then while you're enjoying that sci-fi film, we'll run over here and we'll make a drama. And then we'll do, we'll do like a crime movie over here, a horror movie over there. And, and all the while just kind of making these amazing films that you don't understand like the, oh this is the way horror is supposed to be or you 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 heard about horror one time and you're like this right. doesn't feel like the horror that i've been led to believe is right is out there right well look i mean look and the, again the shining that's why stephen king didn't like it because it wasn't trying to be the shining it was just Steve, uh, kubrick going here's what i'm interested in i'm in, interested in dehumanization i'm interested in all these different things about the world i live in and I like this story and I can see how I can use that story to do what I want to do. So there's no difference between 2001 and The Shining and Clockwork Orange and, and even, uh, you know, Barry Lyndon. You know, there's, they're all kind of tied and Eyes Wide Shut, which I consider a horror film, too. They're all tied into just Kubrick exploring what he wants to do using other using stories and motifs and ideas. And again, Trojan horsing it all the time. And I mean, look at The Exorcist. I said freaking. I mean. You think about The Exorcist, you close your eyes, you can see Linda Blair tied to a bed, vomiting, that, that slop, uh, jabbing a crucifix into herself, and you can see all that stuff, but then that's not why The Exorcist has endured, that's not why it works, it's a story about a mother trying to protect her child, it's a story about a, uh, a man hitting, a, hitting the wall with a crisis of faith, it's a story about uh, you know, adolescence, about uh, puberty, it's, it's got all different things bubbling inside it that hit us on multiple levels. And the, uh, you know, the punctuation mark, if you will, is those visceral moments. Those are the carry out moments. Those are the things that get people through the door and that carry the movie like a sugar coat and carry it through the, the eras, but underneath it. And I'm always, it's always surprising when people go, you know, they actually watch The Exorcist. You know, they heard about it. They, they think they've seen it. They would have, but then they watch it and they go, oh shit, there's so much going on in that movie. It's like, yes, there is. It's because it's a movie. It's a real fucking work of art. And that's the offers the best of what the genre can do intellectually. My favorite novel of all time, for example, is um, Richard Matheson's I Am Legend, uh -huh. which graphs on, you know, science fiction ideas. It graphs on it's it's a horror story. You know, the whole blueprint of it was Matheson in, a, in the trenches in World War II thinking reading Dracula and going, OK, if one vampire is scary, how about a whole army of them? How about a world full of vampires? And but really, it's an existential story about one man just trying to survive and find his place in the universe. The solo, you know, he's, he's a solo act. And that movie, that book goes through so many different evolutions of this man as he grows a beard down to his balls. And then after decides to shave it, you know, tries to kill himself unsuccessfully and then suddenly finds his purpose and is excited to live and then is miserable and won't get out of bed for like a year and then is bored because he's the only man left on the planet. So decides, fuck it, I'm going to teach myself how to become a scientist and, and find out a, a cure just because I can. Like it goes through so many different evolutions of this guy's existence. Uh, and to me, that's, again, the best of the genre. And that's why Matheson was so adapted at like The Incredible Shrinking Man and key, key episodes of The Twilight Zone and Dan Curtis's stuff in the 70s. And that's why he was so adapted all the time because the guy was such a brilliant fucking writer who was doing so many different things with the genre, really expanding the peripherals, the, the boundaries of what you could do with the genre. But no one, surprisingly, no one has ever adapted that book. Properly. It's the easiest book to adapt and no one has ever fucking done it. It's, it's the most mine. And I love the Omega Man. It's one of my favorite movies, but it is like a bastardization 
of everything that works in that novel. I, you know, and the new, the thing with Will Smith, I mean, that's an atrocity and, uh, you know, I don't know. It's such a great novel. And again, I'm spiraling. Sorry. No, it's <laughs> totally fine. I actually think that it, it brings to mind something that, that seems to be a really cool trend and maybe because there's more money behind it. And maybe as, as somebody who's touched all these medias that, that you have, you can expand on this a little bit more, but the ideas of being able to take a book like that, for instance, and, actually extrapolate out the ideas and put it into a TV show as opposed to trying to do it in an hour, half, two hour long movie. Is there more, I don't know if it's just me noticing this, is there more of a trend to do that, do you think, Chris, to take these ideas and really expand it out over a, at eight or 10, you know, tight episodes so you can actually get these ideas across? Do you think that's a more- Yeah, and, and that's the best way to do it. You know, I, what, I just saw a movie last week uh, where the crawdads sing, okay? So it's not a horror thing at all, but it's a Southern Gothic. It has elements of, you know, uh, headiness. All is welcome. Well, I watch all sorts of movies. Yeah, too. I like, I li I like uh, female-centric films. Uh, you know, I, I really do like strong female leads, and especially in a Southern Bayou kind of environment with skeletons in the closet and family secrets and, and mur a murder and all that shit. I love that stuff. But this is based on a beloved, beloved best-selling novel that um, you know, just people just lose their shit over. It's you know, it's a real success story. But trying to cram that into a two-hour framework is is a joke. You can feel the energy of all the chefs in the kitchen who are behind the novel, trying Des Harper Collins from on down to the author are trying to control what's going into this film. It's like it's like a chef agonizing about fast tracking his famous dish, but having to just agonize over which fucking ingredients he can leave out that maybe no one will notice. But if someone who's eaten that dish before is definitely gonna notice and come out of it going, this is not right. And so you watch this movie, even though I've never read the book, you can feel the strains of it fast, almost like you're reading the book in fast motion, like speed reading it, and uh, you feel it. Whereas if this was a television show, you could get deep into the story and the character drawers and. And again, as you say, there's this great trend and it is a great trend. When you're living in a great period, sometimes you're not aware of it. You have to step away from it 20 years later and go, aha, that was a great time. We are in a great time because these trends are happening where creators have the opportunity to really stretch things out over a long period to, and you can't, you can't get to know a character effectively really within two hours if you're adapting a source. But that said, that doesn't mean the two hour film is dead or the film is dead. Film is the realm of the eye. It's the realm of the senses. And you know, you can condense something, you can change something, or you can deep focus in on one thing and spread it out and create an oral visual landscape that only belongs in film, only belongs in that window of cinema that would not work over a span of, of 12 episodes. But when you, I think if you're really hoping to have a multiple character universe, a, a real uh, deft, dynamic, in-depth story you're trying to tell, or a character, as you say, that goes through these, this evolutionary process, yeah, I mean, the series format is, is an ideal and a hugely effective way to, to really uh, to do that, you know, and really feel like you're living with these characters, you know? 
that's a fantastic way to put it, Chris, because when I'm watching these different things, I, I'm trying, I'm always trying to, I don't have the background. I, you know, all my background is just watching things and, and just letting my mind dissect things as, as I go. But I was yeah. reading actually up on some of your stuff, you know, to, to interject, not just the world of horror, but you in it and you in arts. And I was, I was reading, I read a quote from an article. I don't have it handy, but it described your films as um, focusing on the visual and the emotional aspects of it and yes. not so much dialogue. And I'm not saying that this is all your films, but not so much dialogue um, or plot. And you know what? Like I sat back and I think if I would have read that 10 years ago, I would have thought, oh, well, fuck, why am I going to waste my time watching if, if there's no dialogue or plot? But what I'm noticing now is that when you do it right, you don't have to have a bunch of dialogue. You don't really even have to have a lot of plot. So what no. I want you to do for me is explain to me this a little bit more because now I'm watching movies with this in my mind going, oh shit, maybe this filmmaker is not focusing on developing these characters. Like we watched Jurassic Park the other day, for instance, okay? Right. And I watched it and I didn't care for the movie itself. But then I was like, the plot sucks. The character development is garbage. But this movie is about dinosaurs. So right. after I read that quote about your films, I'm now looking at other films going, what is the, what's the plot here? So talk us through a little bit when it comes to your movies. Well, there's, there's, you know, everyone's always looking for meaning, 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 meaning. Sometimes there's just cinematic meaning, or sometimes, you know, you don't have to spoon feed your audience. You know, most dialogue, especially we'll use it in the context of horror films, because this doesn't apply. A conversation doesn't apply to romantic comedies or anything like that. It applies to the, uh, you know, the more expressionist, impressionist, you know, canvases. So horror, you know, drama even. I mean, uh, you know, most dialogue in, in horror films is expository. It's trying to tell the audience who are too dumb to keep up, to keep up. Or, you know, it, it doesn't trust its audience intelligence. Uh, you know, which is not, which is if the dialogue's great, sure. You know, you're a Tarantino or something that can rat-a-tat-tat me with great dialogue. Then I'll just sit there listening to people banter back and forth all day. That's great. But by and large, you know, I think of some of the great horror films I love and how I consume them. And and really what I used to do, and this is true, before VHS even, when I was really, really young, and, and uh, the TV guide would come in every Saturday with the newspaper and I would go through it and I would highlight anything that said horror. And especially I, I found out quickly if it was in the 60s or 70s, well, this was the 80s, so there wasn't too much 80s stuff. So 60s and 70s stuff, particularly late 60s, I knew it was going to be really fucking weird. And if it had names I couldn't pronounce, if they were European, then I knew it was going to be really, really special. And then to seal the deal, I knew I had my Leonard Maltin's video book from when I was really little. Before there was internet, before there was IMDb, us movie guys would reference Maltin because we could get running times, alternate uh, titles, cast, crew, and a little capsule review. So we kind of, it was our, it was our guide. And I would know that if it was a horror film and it got a uh, four-star rating, it was worth your time. If it got a bomb rating, it was worth your time. Anything in between was going to be kind of average. So, and if it was a bomb, because if Malton hated horror stuff, so if he was offended him, then it was going to be amazing. Although he loved Dawn of the Dead, so go figure. Um, anyways, uh, I digress. So what I used to do is I'd circle the stuff and I'd put a little AA battery alarm clock under my pillow and I'd sleep with it. And it would wake me up at the time I wanted to wake up and I'd creep downstairs and I'd sit in front of the TV and have the TV really, really low so I wouldn't wake up my parents. And uh, I'd sit in front of the TV and like really close to it. And I'd watch uh, stuff like uh, Shivers, which was the American version called They Came From Within on TV, or even Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park or Blackula. 
and then weird stuff like Death Curse of Tartu, like the William Greyface film, and and uh, you know, Daughters of Darkness, and weird Hammer horror films, and and anyways, uh, Lamora the Lady Dracula, which was you know like a nightmare caught on film. But I'd watch these, and then I'd hear a creak upstairs, and I'd shut the TV off, and I'd be sitting there in dead, dark silence, waiting for that storm to pass, because I didn't want to waken anyone up and get in trouble. And as soon as it was quiet again, I turned it back on just to see something fucked up happening. But, oh, and it just created this whole experience. And then, you know, I'd be on the couch and I'd fall asleep and I'd wake up and I'd see something else and I'd drift back and wake up. And then you'd wake up and it was like test pattern. And then you'd go to bed, creeping back to bed, but you'd be terrified and being in this dream state world, you're not even sure if what you saw was real. And you'd be piecing together moments of this movie and it would become something completely new in your head. Anyway, so it creates a subject, subjective relationship with the with the film that normally, you know, the average guy, it's just a movie on at two in the morning, it gives a shit, nobody cares. But suddenly it's become this larger than life work of art that's that's opened up all these crazy doors in your mind and your soul and, and uh, defining who you are. So when it comes to that kind of cinema, I'm always looking for movies that create that sort of after hours, 2 a.m., half awake, half asleep, somnambulistic vibe, uh, because I find I'll experience them. And even if I don't quite grab them and understand them, I'll think about them all the time. Uh, even if there's like one or two really uh, sub subversive, superlative moments that'll stick with me and make me want to keep going back into that world and back. And, you know, usually movies that I despise, I'll always want to go back just to see if I didn't miss something. So with my own movies, that has been a very deliberate attempt because they've all, they're all very low budget and I've had to complete creative freedom to do that. And I've had lines to distribution for all of them. So it's like, give me a chunk of money, leave me the fuck alone. I'm going to give you a movie. But the deal is, you know, the only deal is, is that I get final cut. You can't touch it. And I have to do all the music myself. So I create the scores for them and I create these kind of like vacuum environments with themes, existential themes, you know, really, I don't want to like sound pretentious, but there are a lot of things bubbling in these movies, which again, the Trojan horse, things I'm trying to say about the world, but I'm doing it in a very vague way that I understand. And if you want to understand, spend some time with it. If you don't, that's fine too. But I'm trying to create that sensory environment of me as like a nine-year-old, 10-year-old kid sneaking downstairs and, and experiencing a movie at like low volume uh, when I'm half awake, half asleep and living in a state of terror, the, the world around me is going to collapse, you know, that kind of weird dream, dream state environment. So that's the kind of movies I make. And by and large, although I love all cinema and I mean it, I love all cinema. Uh, those are the kinds of movies I really end up loving are those movies you can't quite put your finger on because they keep making you want to go back and back and back. And then you have a relationship with them, a personal relationship with them. I think it's a brilliant way to put it. And I mean, you're actually encapsulating what we were talking about earlier in terms of really creating a life situation linked to that movie, because your your fear is not just from the movie. Your fear is getting caught. And you, the existential crisis that you're talking about, you can definitely see that in, in Necropolis, right? Like the, the, it's, you have that struggle of these characters and, and there's no, like, you don't have to be going in one linear direction. And I think that that's what I'm enjoying about your films. I have to get more of your films, to be quite honest with you, because I keep reading about these things that that they're known for. And the it's going to be fun to go on that journey. I've went on the journey with your music. 
Um, I've been listening to that for the past uh, week and a half. I was listening to it again today and I had my, my fiance sit down and listen to it because I said she's uh, she's a she's an industrial girl. And uh, so as soon as I heard you working with um, with a member of Skinny Puppy and I mean, Skinny Puppy was the first band that she mentioned to me when we first started dating. I was like, oh, my God, you got to we got to listen to Chris's stuff, because I think you're going to find the elements, you know, very similar. And that's what you're doing. Like you're 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 really exploring these like it's almost like you're getting stuck sometimes on a sound and you're just like. You're just like, yeah, that's, ex- that's that exactly, that's exactly what it is. It's because again, as a horror movie fan, you're, I said this before, but you're looking for moments. You're not, you're very forgiving. Horror movie fans are very forgiving, especially if you like all the weird and wonderful international stuff, you get past the bad dubbing, you get past the, you know, the hiccups and plot. You don't care about that. You're looking for that moment, those moments. And so in my music and film, I'm always trying to find that grace note and then saying, fuck it. And the whole world shuts down and it's just the grace note. And now I'm almost going to be pornographic with it and just stretch that out to the point where you're going to hate it. And then you're going to stop hating it. If you stick around long, you're going to stop hating it. And then it's not going to become a movie or a sound anymore. It's going to become a complete environment and you're going to live in it. And then you, when you leave it, no matter what you thought of it, it's going to be lodged in your head. And that's the, that's the intent is to really get down and deep and slow down time and space and really just take that fucking moment and just get deep, deep, dark with it, you know? And, and that's, that's in all the things that I do. Um, try it with the writing. It's not as easy with writing, obviously, with, when you got the written word, the writing's different. You know, you got a little bit of a bounce. You get almost like jazz, you know, bouncing words against each other. You move a little at a brisker pace. But the other stuff, yeah, I like to, like to really kind of, slog it down and there's i mean my stuff's pretty is pop pop music compared to a lot of uh artists how how really fucking you know unsparingly spare they get with their approach to music mine's pretty circus-like because i have a multiple influences i still love kiss i do love procol harem and prog rock and pink floyd and so that makes its way in there moments too but yeah no you you, you banged on it's uh, bang you hit that nail on the head well, let's talk about that then, Chris. Let's talk about, I mean, I know this is like a typical question to ask, but I am curious with a mind like yours, because like I said, the first time that I started to to really dis, uh, discover somebody really dragging out a note was Lynch. And and of course, Lynch is, you know, he's been around for a hundred years, it seems. Yeah. What? Who are some of the people that you look at that, that really kind of inform the way that you make your films and the way that yeah. you design your music? Cronenberg's a big one, and it's the first two Cinepix movies, Rabbit and Shivers, are huge, because um, and the music is a big part of it. And that music is, um, it's also just the feeling of it, the kind of motifs. The it's hard. I and you know what I love about it is I can't even after all these years, I can't even properly articulate how I connect to that stuff. I know the music is the big part of it because it's so alien and so lonely. It also feels like it doesn't belong in that world because it, it technically doesn't. Uh, Ivan Reitman, who produced those, co-produced those first two films, you know, he was the guy put the music together. He didn't make the music. He would just license, they had access to library scores and he'd go in and pick cues. And then it became like a DJ mixing cues that belonged to other things and weaving them into this movie to create a landscape of sound that was just as alien as the movie, as opposed to a composer going, like that kind of shit. This was just drifting in. Like, you know, I always uh, attribute it to like, do you know what I say when I say music from another room? 
Oh yes. Yeah. There's yeah. a feeling, a haunting feeling. If you're in a, like, whether you rented your first apartment and there's noisy neighbors playing music at night or you're in your house and someone down the way is listening to music, the way it kind of drifts almost dissonantly from another room. It's not your world. Your world is in this room. Your world is now being infected by someone else's sound, but it's now affecting your world and creating a new world. I can't ex explain it better than that. Yeah, using those library uh, scores in those first two movies add an element of, of again, otherworldliness to those films that hit me on such a primordial level. And then my favorite movie of all times, Dawn of the Dead, the American cut, because George Romero did the same thing. He'd been doing that since Night of the Living Dead, handpicking scores from library, needle drop stuff, because it was cheaper than hiring a composer primarily. But he ends up becoming this kind of DJ by using music that belongs to other things. And sometimes you can recognize it, you know, some of the, uh, for instance, the, the shock moments from uh, Rabbit and Shivers are, were also used in like the Ralph Bakshi Spider-Man cartoon. Uh, so you can hear them in other places or television commercials, or I actually licensed the, some of the, the cues from Rabbit for my movie Girl with the Straight Razor. I went out and got, bought them so I could use them in my world. So further accentuating the, you know, the perversion of, of music that doesn't belong to whatever you're doing. So uh, yeah, Romero, so Dawn of the Dead, early Cronenberg, although Cronenberg right till now, I mean, there's a guy that has never wavered from his vision uh, ever. Even when he's done stuff like A Dangerous Method, it's still tied up and Dangerous Method to me is no different than Shivers, you know? Uh, it's about, Shivers is about an alien parasite, an, an outside thing coming in, infecting a, a body and a philosophy, you know, kind of spreading around and everyone else transforming and becoming something new. A Dangerous Method is about a, a philosophy infecting a woman and infecting a, a man so that they end up kind of losing what they are, their concepts of what they are and becoming something new. One completely falls apart. The other one is saved by that. I love that whole idea. So Cronenberg, Romero, on a purely um, empty cinematic level, John Carpenter, because those early Carpenter, Alan Howard scores over, the, you know, I mean, the Dean Cundy visuals. I and mean, there's a there's a certain voodoo in that stuff that can't be replicated. And no one can do it anymore. I mean, Car Carpenter can't do it anymore. No one can replicate that. Uh, so there's those great moments in time. But then, I mean, I don't know. There's so many. Lynch, obviously, we mentioned is another huge, huge one. Right up in, from the eraser head until now, there's a persistence of vision. Even when he's at his most mainstream, like Wild at Heart and shit like that, there's still those moments where it stops dead. And those are the moments you come out with, you remember. You know, I close my eyes and think of Wild at Heart. It's not so much Nicolas Cage doing his Elvis thing on the dance floor with the, that metal band playing and shit, although that's there. It's like the, the camera moving slowly down the streets of New Orleans with wind blowing in slow motion. Well, that white noise goes down and that dead, that droning Angelo Badalamenti note. That's the stuff that sticks with me because it's hitting some sort of primordial level. But again, I love all cinema, man. So I could uh, rave on about uh, Carl Reiner, you know, man with two brains and shit and, and the jerk, uh, you know, J uh, John, John Ford, you know, and, and I mean, all these guys, like movies like The Searchers and, and uh, Dario Argento. I mean, I, I love it all, but the stuff that really sticks with me, there's something going on that's accidental that has created something completely new that has uh, that can't be replicated. Uh, it can be imitated. It can never be duplicated.
especially with some things that are seemingly simplistic. You know, you mentioned Carpenter and he comes up with these little scores and, you know, Wes Craven back in the day, you know, they, they create these, they create these sounds, right? Like we talked about sounds and, and it seems so simple, but it's so perfectly placed that I don't know that you would want to reproduce that anyways. Um, well, people, people try. I mean, that's the thing is that you, you can try all you want. That goes back to the, the statement about people just consuming a sty- steady diet of horror movies and then trying to replicate the exact beats thinking they've got it down it's like no no you're just basically taking someone else's something that really they didn't even plan themselves that just kind of came out organically and you're trying to make it an inorganic photocopy of it it's not going to work and that's why again this is an old hoary conversation with horror fans but all remakes suck it's like no but what about the thing and what about this it's like well that's true because those guys worked in the fly you know they were taking the germ of something that they were connected to or not and completely remaking it in their own image. And that's the way, way you do it. And introducing their own, Cronenberg introducing his own psychosis and his own themes and his own obsessions and John Carpenter, the same thing. You know, his, his love of, uh, you know, Howard Hawks and everything infiltrating. Well, that was Howard Hawks who made the thing, so never mind. <laughs> that was a salute to the OG. But you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, when we were, it's kind of funny when we watch it, when we finished watching Crimes of the Future uh, recently, I I said to Kat, man, Cronenberg is somebody I would love to sit down and talk to. And these are just the types of people that you kind of want to rip open their brain and just try to absorb it. Because I don't think that you can actually talk to these people and understand what the hell's going on inside their brain. However, you have sat down with a lot of these people. You've worked with these yeah. people firsthand. Oh, like, yeah, yeah, all the people you just mentioned, Romero, uh, D- Del Toro, um, yeah. Cronenberg. Like, I Robert, have to yeah, say, like, how the hell is that? Like, that's kind of be yeah, it's, other it's, you never get, you never, that never gets old. That never gets old. And I'm not saying I can go bowling with these guys on Friday nights, you know. It's not that kind of like buddy-buddy. Although, it, you know, some of them, yeah, it's their close relationship. George, for instance, uh, was, uh, I considered him, my my hero, Dawn of the Dead, is mythical to me. It still is, but um, he was a, a a good friend. If he wasn't George Romero, the director, he would have been George Romero, the kindly eccentric who I just loved sitting around t- watching Turner Classic movies with. I mean, he just he was just an, a magnificent guy. You know, he just it was a lot of fun. He was a hell of a rack on tour. And uh, the ten years that he lived in Toronto, we were very very close. I was the first guy to speak at his funeral. You know, uh, that was surreal. You know, here you are, all these people that Savini and Nicotero and Galen Ross and John Russo, all these guys that were larger than life to you. You're now all together in the same room to say goodbye to the guy that was the largest of them all. And you're the first guy to speak at that mic. I mean, it was just like, what the hell's going on, you know, in, in this world that I live in? And then it really does hammer home the fact that this is a quote from like Anna Green Gables, but it's like, it's a big, small world. You know, it really does. The older you get, the world shrinks and you start to go, okay, we're all, we are all the same. Human beings are all the same all over the world. Pretty much. We want love, affection. We don't want pain. We want uh, security, safety, and we want food. Uh, so yes, we're all, we're all kind of the same. And also all the things that are insanely huge become intimate and familiar and Cronenberg's the same way David is like the nicest and we just we last time him David and I actually did something together was we we produced the the blu-ray for Shivers uh Lionsgate put it out in what 2019 I guess and that was crazy but you know I mean we've had great conversations uh, 
Cronenberg, for instance, he lost his wife the year before my own father passed, and he went into a deep, dark depression, uh, even though she'd been battling cancer for many, many years. And uh, I'd, I've known David for 10 years. We got we 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 worked on uh, getting John Dunning the Lifetime Achievement Award of the Toronto Critics Association for, you know, for his work at Cinepix. And, and it was David and I together advocating for that because they wouldn't do it. And he's like, he's just a trash exploit. No, no, no. This guy invented Canadian cinema. And we, you know, presented the award to him that the Globe and Mail released that while he was in his dying bed in Montreal. So there's a real intimate connection with not just my love of, you know, and I have like a book I wrote when I was 12 saying he's my hero. I love Cronenberg. And I, so we have this connection on the film level, but we also have a connection in dealing with people that we mutually know who have passed from disease. My father was dying of cancer. It was David Cronenberg who was there for me the entire time, you know, literally while I was at the hospital bed, emailing me advice on how to cope on at this stage. And uh, so he's just to know these people as these incredible artists that are beyond that, that are beyond who they are as people. So you love them on that level. And then you get to know them as human beings. And then you love them on a completely different level. So there's, you end up knowing two different versions of the same human, which is very, very interesting. Very fascinating because we often forget these massive icons of, of the things that we love the most are so unattainable to us. But then when you do get a chance to interact with them, you realize they're human beings. And yeah. I love the fact that you said that we are all the same, because again, going back to what you and I talked about earlier, we're at that stage in our life where we are looking around going like, this is all the same shit. Like we're all the same thing. If, if not yeah. for you, yeah. then not me. And if not for me, then not that thing over there, there's nothing that really separates us very nothing. much. Is there Chris? Or there is, uh, there's, there's, there's absolutely huge things that separate us, but there, there's, there, honestly, if we could get past that, they're so superficial. We have so much more in common than we do uh, different. I mean, that's, there's just no other way to say it, but we get caught up in this bullshit and we get caught up in such nonsense, such posturing. And usually all that stems from fear and for a myriad reasons, but we get caught up in these, these, these things that, that create boundaries. I've never been a fan of sports because of that. Isn't that weird? Like even as a kid, I was thinking about these things, like how can you be a fan of this team like the Toronto Maple Leafs, how can you be a fan of that team when no one here is from Toronto? It's never the same team like any other year. So you're basically cheering on a logo. Why don't you go cheer on the McDonald's arches? I mean, what are you cheering for? What, what are you championing? And why is our little patch of grass better than their patch of grass? And why are we against now those people? Why are we opposing? And that's to me, the whole world. Like at what point did someone draw that fucking magic marker line on the planet earth and say, you know, I'm on this side, I'm different than you now. And now we must fight for, to expand the, the, where the magic marker goes or whatever the hell people are fighting about. It's the tribalism of it, it's always made me ill. It really ha continues to do so. Uh, so yeah, we are all the fucking same. I, I, it's funny too, my dad, God, God rest him, always used to say, I really hope, he introduced me to H.G. Wells when I was a kid, specifically the album War of the Worlds, the Jeff Wayne musical version of War of the Worlds, which is my favorite album of all time. When I was like four, he brought that thing home. But he would always say, I really hope there's an alien invasion sometime because that's when everybody says, fuck this. We are now on the same page. We are fighting the one common enemy now that is really trying to threaten it. It's when we all connect and we can all see it clearly that what kind of movie you like, doesn't what kind of clothes you wear, what, what, you know, whatever politician you vote, doesn't mean anything, nothing. Uh, but then when COVID hit, I kind of felt that that was the alien for a minute, for a hot minute. 
but that so shit close. didn't last it didn't last man it was like and then it kind of like bummed me out i'm like i was looking at my dad who never made it to covid world thank god and i, I just look you know dude you were wrong <laughs> you were wrong <laughs> the alien invasion shit it still wouldn't fucking work we'd all join hands kumbaya for five fucking minutes until somebody's ego superseded someone else and then it would be all collapsing again fear and ego the great you know the destructors of, of the human the beautiful human mind that could be doing so many amazing things and it always falls prey to the basest the most pathetic impulses i love the fact that i'm hearing my words from somebody else especially somebody much more eloquent than i am because i've been saying the same fucking thing for years and i said the same thing about covid as well and of course, now I'm going on all of these journeys. Um, you know, psilocybin has been fucking amazing. It's blown my mind wide open. And then it keeps the mind wide open. And now we're watching uh, Cosmos, the, the newest Cosmos, I guess, I think it's called World of Possibilities or something like that. And they're not just focusing on how we got to this stage, but how do we get to the next stage? And the, the element that keeps coming up for me is that the next stage, the only way we get there is if we're able to get rid of the certain things that have been holding us back, which, as you said, ego, um, these preconceived notions, this organization, emotion is key, I think, to our existence. However, the way that we've been utilizing it or the way that it's programmed into our DNA right now, massively a hindrance to our future. We don't have the ability to get past our own selves in order to open ourselves up to new possibilities. But I am excited that there are people out there that are looking into the future and saying, if we do a certain thing here, then the future could look like this. Yeah. I'm going to leave on this one here. Oh, actually, unless you want to add to that, Chris. No, I just, the first horror movie I ever saw was the 78 remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And uh, that deals obviously with all those, those elements. But the, here's the catch 22 of all this. And that's why there are no, it will never be any easy answers, no matter how, what we think is right or wrong. Or, is that, you know, that film is in all its incarnations is about one species coming down, is superseding another by duplicating it. So it looks, talks, moves exactly like that other species, but it eradicates what it believes to be all those things that we talk about that are so detrimental to our evolution and emotion being one of them and, and uh, ego and all these things. But by the same token, at the end of it, then what are we left with? We're left with something that we're not. So where do we reconcile the fact that we want to be better and how do by but is the answer to be completely eliminating these things that make us human i mean what is what is it to be human what are we then are we just a collection of our weaknesses and impulses are we predisposed dis, to destruction is that what makes us beautiful i don't even know you know it's it's this burning eternal question that science fiction at this stage of the game is kind of helping to explore in an entertainment level but uh you know it's it's a tough it's a tough question to, to answer i don't think we ever will and maybe again that's part of the beauty of, of being human is that we're always seeking but we never find absolutely and and i think that that's that's okay because it will continue to push us forward into whatever happens next and and to think that we know what's going to happen next i think is is one of the biggest jokes to be honest with the you. biggest jokes i 100 right? percent agree yeah like i mean we don't even know what's going to happen in the next five minutes no we hell? don't Right. I so well, this I, and it's funny. It's what I tell my kids to, for example, yesterday we had uh, they wanted to go to Niagara Falls, Canada, which has a, a glut of great wax museums. And you know what exactly what you're going to get that day. 
And we thought about it and I said, well, okay, yes, we can do that. We can, here's our chunk of money for the day. We can go there and spend that money and we are gonna get the same experience we've had last time we've gone with maybe a few variants. Or we can just pick a point, like we'll say, look, we like to collect antiques and weird shit. Let's go to a flea market we've never been way out of town. And we'll just see where we end up. And we literally from, from dawn till dusk, one of this adventure, the flea market was the worst piece of shit we've ever been to. But around it, we discovered all these other things. Another weird market, a weird circus had popped up and out of nowhere in this in this like field, like a fucking circus. And then there was an amusement park and we ended up like there. And we're like, we don't even know where we are. Half the, and then we end, oh, just we just drove around and we went to even something as stupid as my son collecting action figures and wanted to go to a Toys R Us he'd never been to before. And we just looked one up and just hit it. And he found a whole bunch of the shit that the other Toys R Us didn't have. So at the end of the day, we just kept, even this morning, we're all marveling. What a great day that was yesterday because we had no idea what was next, you know? I love and that. That's, that's the way you should live your life because, you know, there are no guarantees and we don't know what's what's next. And it's foolish to, to think that, that we're going to have a predictable and it's fun to just kind of roll with it, you know? Absolutely is. I mean, that's something again, that that's becoming more and more clear to me is starting out your day with a general idea of what you want to do is okay. But also mm. leaving yourself okay. open for that thing to flux and flow the way it's going to will yeah. lead you into experiences that that you just could have never planned. And, and right. those are some of the sweetest things, aren't they? Yeah, I agree. Love it. Okay. A little bit of future stuff now, and then I'll leave you on this because, uh, as we said, you're wearing many hats, so you've probably got stuff to do today. So I do, yeah, I got, yeah. I definitely do. And I want to know, I just want to know what's next for Chris. Like, where where are we going next with you? What, what are we seeing? What are we hearing? What are we doing? What's what's happening with you? Well, as far as just like what projects I'm doing, I mean, absolutely. It's funny. The last couple of years I've made during the pandemic, so I've made like five movies, but this year I've made none. But I think there's a couple on the horizon, which is which is fun. And uh, I work, you know, yes, I am uh, one of the heads of operation at Full Moon, which is weird in L.A. So I keep going back and forth to L.A. We're producing a show out there. And Roger Corman just had him on and John Waters in a couple of weeks. And so there's that. That's fun. I'm going to go keep going back out doing that. And then um, I wrote a book about Roger Corman that was blessed by Roger Corman. He wrote the foreword. And it's all my collection of interviews with Roger for 20 years discussing the uh, creation of the Edgar Allan Poe series. And that comes out at the end of the year from Head Press Books in the U.K., and uh, I'm back on the horse performing um, live music again, which I haven't done for, you know, almost a year. Uh, first show was in Niagara Falls, actually, at the end of October. Uh, also, I run Horrorama Canada in Toronto. If you're around beginning of October, we have some cool guests lined up. Come on out. I think we're the only horror convention in Toronto, like strictly horror. And geez, I don't know, man, just being a dad and, and keeping, again, myself open to opportunity and what comes next the teaching yeah, i'm teaching at sheridan horror film theory and history and uh yeah just living life and, and trying to be as honest with who i am and creating honest work and making sure there's food on the table you know there you go well, i i mean I, I have to assume that you're doing okay there which is good but uh, i think leaving yourself open to to other endeavors is going to continue to bring that that food through the door yes and you know last thing i gotta say this is super important and i don't know why i'm even saying it but you know, you always have to have something that's not work in your life that brings you super fucking joy, whether it be a hobby, quote unquote, whatever it is. But my joy currently, and has been for the last couple of years, is I am obsessed with collecting, curating, uh, you know, viewing a screen, 16 millimeter films from, a, you know, from, from the history of the beginning of when they were processed 
through the television era because most television stations only thought, you know, they screened 16 mil before there was videos. So there's this glut of amazing films and prints and some of them never made it even to VHS or DVD. And, and I've developed a really great collection of, of 16 millimeter films. So I, you know, and that's my joy. I'm not doing it for, for commerce. I'm not doing it for, for anything else, but the sheer enjoyment. And I watched, I, it's a, I only, I don't like to share them with anybody. I like to screen them myself by myself. So uh, that's my current non-professional passion is to uh is to collect 16 millimeter cinema i i have to ask sorry and we're gonna wrap up i swear yeah why why 16 mil like what what is it about 16 mil that that well because they were again they were you can get the history of these things and you know 35 is obviously theatrical but 16 was as well depending on what point of the world but What's interesting for me, my, my real interest in collecting is I'm, I love television films and a lot of these TV made for TV films never made it to um, video. And the only place you can see them is on 16 mil because they were produced for television. They weren't, weren't struck 35 ever. They were framed to be four by three. So these prints are the only uh, document in existence that these movies were ever made. So there's that. Also there's alternate versions end up on 16 mil as well. So, for instance, a movie like um, uh, Curtis Harrington's Rubies during Piper Laurie was completely, they take out a little bit of violence here, but they'd reshoot all new scenes. They do all kinds of weird hybrid stuff, and they'd make a new version for network television for the screenings. And those were only struck on 16, and you can't find them anywhere except on 16. So it's all kind of like an alternate carry. Brian De Palma's carry has a completely different opening because they have to cut out all the, the locker room shit and it's a different it's a different experience so and the only place you can find these things are on um 16 so there's an alternate history of cinema that hasn't been you know battered to death by boutique blu-ray labels uh, that's out there and you can only find it on, on film fascinating Fascinating. Well, listen, I'm not going to uh, keep you any longer. I think that uh, the information that you shared, not only about your personal journey, but everything else has been fantastic. So I really appreciate you, Chris, sitting sitting down with us and, uh, and chatting. So thank you very much, man. Yeah, thank you. It was fun.